0: The following audio is via a Skype call.
1: You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the
2: truth!
3: It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell, a double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Saturday. Happy being relative and aspirational. Nevertheless, happy weekend to everyone. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and we are joined at the board by our buddy, tall guy, Nathan Miller. Nathan, how are you doing today, sir?
0: Hey, good morning, Gary and Suzanne. I am doing excellent this morning. And are you handling the truth? Uh, Doing the best I can. I Actually, am very relieved uh, that yesterday... There was a protest march that went through my neighborhood, actually right by my house, and it was very nice to see how peaceful and family-friendly it was.
2: I think a lot of the protests have been peaceful, and the ones that haven't are have been the ones that have gotten the news coverage, but I, I've also heard people say there have been a lot of peaceful protests, so good on Seattle. And I take it that the march going by your house was
3: merely coincidence. <laughs>
0: What do you mean by that?
3: They weren't going to your house,
0: just by your <laughs> oh, house. Oh, yeah, by my house, yeah. <laughs> I actually live off in a little cul-de-sac off the main road they were marching, so I was able to see them from the window, and uh, they were chanting and holding up their signs, but it, like I said, it was very peaceful and family-friendly. It's good to see the younger generation involved as well, because I think that's really what's going to help propel this going forward and into the future and keep it lasting.
2: We're going to talk about the younger generation today and we're going to be talking about this topic with a gentleman who we have talked to before who's written a fascinating book called Into the Mystic, the visionary and ecstatic roots of 1960s rock and roll. And he puts it in such a context of history that we couldn't possibly address the whole book in one hour. So we've been chucking it, chunking it down and we did, a, we did a show about the beats and the beat generation. And uh, today we're going to talk more about the hippies. How about if I uh, do his mad props, Gary, what do you think?
3: Let's get the man on air.
2: Christopher Hill has written about rock and roll music in the pages of Spin, Record Magazine, International Musician, Chicago Magazine, Downbeat... Deep Roots Magazine, and other national and regional publications. His work has been anthologized in the Rolling Stone Record Review, and he is the author of Holidays and Holy Nights, currently a contributing editor at Deep Roots Magazine. He lives in Madison, Wisconsin, where Gary and I have passed through, though we never met the man, and his book is Into the Mystic. We are very happy to have you back with us, uh, for more, more punishment, Christopher Hill, I guess we didn't turn you <laughs> off the first time, so you're back again.
1: <laughs> no, I'm I'm delighted to be back, and I'm flattered to be invited back for, uh, for another hour. So um, I think there's a lot of, uh, obviously there's a lot of stuff to talk about, and I think we'll find some things as we look back 50 years or so, that uh, are surprisingly relevant to where we are today.
3: Absolutely, Christopher, and yes, welcome to the show. You know, it was back in 1968, actually. I remember taking civics in the spring of 1968. Oh, my God. So we had the assassination of Martin Luther King, Jr., followed not long after by the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. as he was on his Mm -hmm. way to the Democratic nomination in Chicago. With all of that going on, the riots in the streets, I would never tell anybody that we are duplicating such a horrible experience today, despite what we see on the news. It isn't a duplication of it, in my opinion, Christopher, but I am calling to mind what Winston Churchill said. I may not have the quote exact, but he said that People talk about history repeating itself. He says, history doesn't repeat itself. History rhymes. And in what I see going on in the streets of America across our country today, I'm seeing a rhyming with a very turbulent history that I would not want to see in any sense repeated. But those elements are more than just echoes. The issues underlying all of that remain with us today. Do you agree?
1: Oh, I do. I do agree very much, and I love that quote from Churchill, too. Um, I think that, you know, back in the 60s, it seems to me, um, as I did my, my thinking about it and my, and my reading about it, that um, there were issues from the Civil War that had never been really resolved that emerged 100 years later in the 1960s. So, you know, history has a way, if you don't get it settled, if it doesn't really get settled, it it keeps coming back until it does, until there's some sort of resolution.
2: You know, um, I, I mentioned to you right before we came on air that there were a couple things I actually wanted to read today from your book. It will give people a sense of what your book is about. And this is more toward the end of it, um, but it it pertains to what it is that we're talking about. And in this chapter on the vision of childhood, one of the things that we did discuss with you last time is um, how the songs are the poetry of the children, both on on the U.K. side and on the American side. And so we, we were in this chapter, you're talking about childhood And in it you say, it is one of the bigger insights of the 60s, an idea that was both conservative and radical, that if you go back far enough in time, back to the beginning of any particular human thing, when the story might have gone one way or another, many of the things that would one day constitute society and culture were radically unstable. And when Gary and I were reviewing your book for today, I was saying, boy, you know, things were so unstable back in those late 60s. And we had, um, you know, the chaos and the violence and the, the, um, the election of 1968 and the Chicago Convention and all of that that happened. And it, it seems like, and, and you were writing this about the 60s, before we ever got to today's protests. But I I said, you you can hardly agree more that things were unstable back there in the 1960s, and as you just said, not very resolved. And so here we are in another situation. Back in the 60s, it could have gone one way or another, but it seems Mm -hmm. like the way it went was down a road that had much more to do with uh, physical and materialism than it did about our spiritual growth. Does that make sense to you, Christopher?
1: Yes, yes, it does. Um, and I think that, that for people who lived through the '60s or, or were or were importantly influenced by the '60s, I think there was a, a long interval. A real sort of disappointment and um, and a temptation to lot of strange kinds of energies together in one in one country in one national entity um, and I think that some of the artists some of the best artists of the 60s realized that you had to come to grips with this um, you couldn't look the other way you know things were getting just Things seem to be on the verge of spinning out of control. And, uh, and I think that, I think that today you can certainly understand people who feel that things are about to spin out of control right now with what's happening in the streets today, um, the, uh, the coronavirus, the, um, the climate, the concerns about climate and climate change, Um, I think that people are kind of feeling that things are maybe about to get a little bit out of hand. And that's definitely the way that people were feeling back in 1968 and 69 as well.
3: I agree with you 100%, Christopher, this idea of things getting out of hand.
2: Out of hand for who,
3: though? Well, if if you take a step back, and I try to look at this with some detachment anyway, I don't know how well I'm doing at that, but when I take a breath and I look at it, I can see that one thing about a pandemic, I'm never going to call it good, but perhaps necessary, is that a pandemic has a way of focusing the mind at the same time that as it sweeps across continents, it is a pandemic, so it sweeps the world there are elements that come apart. There is a testing, a proving ground for the capacity of governments to actually govern. And seemingly things are reconciled, where before you didn't have people coming together for a cause, but now they do, even as they risk being exposed to the very disease that we're all seeking to avoid. And when I look at that, I go, that is such a horrible jumble. I don't know what kind of leadership it's going to take i'm not seeing it now from our federal government but i don't know what it's going to take for these disparate elements and all of them dangerous and combustible to be brought together in a harmonious whole i just don't see how that's going to happen
2: well it also harkens back to eisenhower saying beware of the military industrial complex and now when you're militarizing in the streets of Washington, D.C. against your own citizens, it seems like that has certainly come about as part of what is happening in history right now. So when you're saying yeah. that things are unstable, um, it, it, I mean, you can really point to that as a as a chink in democracy. And is that going to get fixed or not?
1: Mm-hmm. I think that um, the somebody once said that um, the assassination of John Kennedy was the Rosetta Stone of American politics, um, and that you can, by studying that, you can get a handle on how to interpret um, the things that have happened since then. And I think that we... We must remember this you know that maybe the assassination of a leader of one person might not shake things up today as much as the way it did back then but it really did back then and it made that was the beginning um it was one beginning of that sense of radical instability in this country um you just had this sort of existential event where the leader was was shot down in public, and nobody knew exactly what was going on or who had done it or what the effects were going to be. Um, there was fear of nuclear confrontation uh, that was part of part of the panic surrounding the assassination. And I think that um, Bob Dylan was very much affected by the Kennedy assassination, and it turned him, I think it played a a very important role in turning him from the more conventional kind of folk and uh, issues-oriented songs that he had been writing and singing into that period which a lot of people would say is Bob Dylan's great high period uh, in the 60s when he put out this amazing series of albums, um, Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde, um, where all of a sudden what Dylan was evoking in his songs was this sort of kaleidoscopic fantasy carnival sort of world where everything was seen in a kind of surreal light. Um, you'd say a psychedelic light because I think that Bob Dylan was very interested in psychedelics at that period. Um, but I think he understood his real is the realization that he came to which was in large part provoked by the chattering event of the Kennedy assassination was that there were forces in America that could not be met with effectively in uh, a rational, let's all sit down and talk this through kind of way. Um, I think that he felt that Something had come loose in the country, in the in the mind of the country um, that was something that had been implicit in American life for a long time that had never risen to the surface before. And it was this kind of wildness, this sort of um, sense that anything could happen now in America. And you, ha- you, you really have to sort of move to a new level of consciousness to deal with it. And that kind of interests me when I think about um, what's happening in the streets today and, um, and with the public health situation and things like that, is that we're being maybe pushed to another kind of breakthrough in consciousness, the kind that Dylan thought that he was witnessing in America, in uh, starting in 1963, and I think that um, he, I think that he would have. Well, he's Dylan of course is still around and still singing, but uh, and interestingly, just released a 17-minute song about the Kennedy assassination. Um, mm. <laughs> But I think that Dylan, Dylan, Dylan would say this is another moment when the American craziness has come to the surface, when the energies that are latent and bubbling under in the country um, have bubbled over uh, up to the surface again, and we had better be prepared for a lot of things that are going to stretch our ordinary ideas about how things work and how we get things done
2: you know Christopher and and that applies to how it is that we are doing business right now when you when you say how we get things done I mean it it's interesting to have gone from a point in time where one of my first jobs out of college was working in a bank and, and so um, I, I wasn't mm-hmm. a teller, but I was, I was in the investments area, um, large investments and things like that, where you uh-huh. meet people, you greet people, you've got your public in there. And then all of a sudden we're talking about ATMs, and then we're talking about how you can bank online, and now I'm banking on my telephone with an app. Yeah. And, and so yeah. I don't need to go into a bank anymore. And so fundamentally, you know, things can change as to how it is that we do business. And with the pandemic, people are really taking a look at that. Are they able to work from home? Do we need to keep bringing people to offices to congregate in order for them to do their work? Mm -hmm. It may be at a point in time you needed a manager and a bullwhip to make sure that everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing but it seems now as though many people are successfully able to work from home and don't need to go to an office. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you're, and, and to to be aware of what essential workers are, you know, who really has to go to work? Well, I know the garbage men do. I mean, I, I'm out there getting my cans back and waving at them um, from a distance and realizing how important they are. I mean, who really has to go to work? Who really has to be out there? And who does not need to be out there? And then, yes, of and course, we'll, yeah, go ahead.
1: We're, we're finding that, that the essential workers are the people who, uh, in a whole lot of cases, don't have some of the basic advantages that, um, that people who are working in more middle-class or white-collar positions do and yes. yet we're discovering we're discovering how how important they really are to the functioning of our society.
2: Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and I've said this before so I don't want to harp on this, but all the sports have gone away and you know, I don't see a whole lot of people crying because they can't watch sports on TV. Very yeah, overpaid right. people running around with a ball. I mean, really? And the hardcore yeah. fans hardcore fans but that's a small amount
3: and are you going to risk your life going out to a stadium that has 25 35 maybe 50,000 people and particularly nfl sundays you know i'm not going to
2: entertainment one of the other things that i wanted to ask you i don't know if you've thought about this or not uh, christopher but in your book into the mystic one of the things that you say i don't have the quote right in front of me but you talk about the fact that the 60s were really all about the music it wasn't about as much about the, uh, the politics or the sexual mores or the other things that were shifting and changing at the same time, but it was the music. And uh, last year I had a, a high school class reunion and, and everybody was all about playing the music. They wanted to hear the 60s oh, yeah. music. And so that mm-hmm. was like the, the centerpiece of our getting together was the music and, mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm saying, I don't think it's the music right now. I don't know mm-hmm. what it is, but that doesn't seem to be the, the, def, the defining thing about 2020 the way it was back in the 60s. Have you thought about what it is that is defining this right now?
1: Well, you, um, you wonder about that. And I, I have to say, as a baby boomer myself, I I feel myself these days at a little bit of a disadvantage when it comes to um, being up with what's happening musically um, with people who are the age of my children. Uh, although I do I do manage to hear a fair amount of it, largely because of my children and uh, and because of you know these music streaming services we have nowadays where you can. Hear absolutely anything you want to, um, at the at the click of a mouse. Um, I think now my book, of course, was written from the point of view of a of a person who has mostly been a music writer um, for most of my life, and and so I may um, there may be a little uh, confirmation bias. In, uh, in what I write about how the important thing was the music. But for certain, the music was... Every generation has its own music. But for sure, there was something happening in this music that was critical to the spirit of the time and to what was going on at the time that was... That was potent. That had power to um, to alter consciousness, as as they said then, and as we might say now, um, to spread sort of spread the message of this new way of looking at the world that incorporated some of the crazy energies that were coming to the surface back then, and gave people a way to a suggestion, it gave people a suggestion of how you can live in this kind of world where everything seems unstable and where the things that were providing security and stability for years and years and years don't seem to be doing it anymore. Um, now, that is, that's another piece of history that I think, in Churchill's phrase, rhymes between now and what was going on fifty years ago, and you know we can talk about this. We can think about this a little bit because what does what what sources of inspiration or guidance or or artistic um, uh, artistic inspiration is there nowadays for young people to to sort of give them a suggestion of what direction things might be heading in, the way that people sort of look to people like the Beatles and Bob Dylan to tell them what was going on. Um, I don't, um, I could maybe think, I could maybe hazard a few guesses as to what that might be, but I'm not sure. Um, You know, I'd kind of like to hear what you guys think about that, too.
3: I know I have something that goes back that predates this, which is a precursor, and I would love to get your perspective on it as we try to follow the timeline of this cultural shift, a cultural revolution that is echoing today. And when it comes to the music of today or 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, I admit that I am at a loss, Christopher Hill, much like yourself, and I'm sure I'm behind that curve further than you, but I'm trying to understand, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are as well. Let's go ahead and take our break, and when we come back, we're going to deconstruct a bit to try to figure out how we got to where we are today, pop culture-wise. Christopher Hill is our honored guest of this hour. His book is called Into the Mystic, the visionary and ecstatic roots of 1960s rock and roll. Boomer alert, we're coming back with more on the other side of this short break. We are Manson Mitchell and you are tuned in to Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype
0: call. Staying connected with Gary Manson and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to MansonMitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terryterryloving.com. At That's terryterryloving.com.
2: The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom
0: and Levi.
1: Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities, been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them, but I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong.
3: Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me, and my love for him was just immense.
0: When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's, now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council.
2: On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Leslie Rule, who has written a true crime book in the footsteps of her famous mother.
3: On Saturday, Reverend Michael Bogar returns with a fascinating conversation about mysticism. What's a mystic like you doing in a place like this? Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. An alternative to everything else on your radio dial. Alternative Talk 1150.
2: Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Christopher Hill, author of Into the Mystic, The Visionary and Ecstatic Roots of 1960s Rock and Roll. Uh, I'm assuming, Christopher, people can get your book just about anywhere. Uh, Is there a, a website or anything else that you would like to do by way of having our listeners connect with you?
1: Oh well now they can find the book on Amazon of course. Um, it's uh it's there. And um, now I'm never prepared with the uh with the um, the link to my website. Let me see if I can find it uh quickly <laughs> enough here and see what's going see you know, I... where that is. If we can catch that. Um
2: I may, I may have it. We'll give it out before the end of the hour. You think
3: this guy might be a boomer?
2: <laughs> he might be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was a yeah. thread I wanted to pick up on from before the break when we were talking about back in the 60s that things were not as stable as they might have appeared and it was possible to go one way or the other, and I was, you know, saying to Gary uh, about the uh, instability, you know, according to who, according to who. And and it, it brings to mind, Christopher, that uh, when you're talking about America being the kind of places at, that it is, that what occurred after the Second World War, when we were on such a high from saving the world, is that um it brought to certain people in power and you know when Eisenhower said, beware of the military industrial complex. I mean, what has resulted from 1960 to 2020 in my mind, one of the things that I'm particularly noticing is the whole idea of income inequality where you know Mm -hmm. if you if you are you know if you work hard you can do well in america well you know if you are well connected with people who have money then they will help you get well connected and have a lot of money too and so now Mm -hmm. we have fewer and fewer people at the top of the pyramid and many 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 more at the bottom of the pyramid middle class is disappearing rapidly and um and and the middle class thinks they're middle class but they don't realize that they're among the working poor when you have to have you know everybody in the household working and contributing for the uh for the the bread and butter on the table that you know that's not living as well as we were living back in the 50s and 60s that's uh that's definitely much harder times so you know it seems like with the, the protests coming up, you know, it reminds me of the sit-in on Wall Street, which didn't last very long. And, of course, it reminds me of the protests of the 60s. But I'm wondering what will change out of this now. Could Is there ever going to be a cultural change? Gary was saying earlier he had his doubts. Maybe there won't be. Maybe this is just this week's flavor of, of protest.
3: And not not in the ephemeral sense so much as the enduring, the abiding divide of consciousness in our nation. And thank you for that. That allows me to go back in time and then try to bring it up to speed with the very able assistance of Christopher Hill. Christopher, I wanted to mention this to you, and this is just my take on it. If you go back, we played this, and we and I chose that song purposely, Street Fighting Man, The Rolling Stones, which I believe came out in 1968 okay, all of this going on, that, that very hot summer worldwide, the spring, the summer, and all the tumult, the yeah. violence in the streets, the assassinations. Yeah. If you go back just shy of 20 years, who do you have taking the world, and principally America, but internationally, taking the world by storm? A young man, of. A- extraordinarily handsome and talented and charismatic young man who hails from Tupelo, Mississippi. Elvis Presley had the looks, he had the charm, he had the swiveling hips, he had the ability to translate songs in a very romantic way, songs that he didn't even write. And he was able to do this in a way that, it seems to me, rested on what Americans love most, and that is certitudes. Elvis Presley loved God, listened to his gospel singing. He loved his mother, that's legendary. And he loved his country, serving his hitch in the army without complaint. Mm -hmm. And met his future wife while he was over there in the bargain. Mm -hmm. Then he comes back and makes movies, and he's making people buy millions of records, all these number one hits, and moves to Graceland, which becomes a a place of uh, like his own Camelot of the South. All of this goes on. But then if you take a look at that in the late 50s and the early 60s, then we get to a time roughly 90 days after the assassination of President Kennedy. You have these four young men from Liverpool coming over with a new look, a new sound. They had their own swagger, and they launched a revolution that came to be known as the British Invasion. And even at that, Christopher, that's a seismic change in and of itself, okay? Okay. But when you look at 1964 and their appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show, go ahead three years, four years, five years. Something seismic happened to world society with headquarters of that counterculture being America. Some would say San Francisco. Okay. With all of that going on, I wonder what it was that shook us to our foundation from an Elvis Presley dominating popular culture to the Beatles, the British invasion, and all the groups, including some that you articulate so eloquently into in your book, Into the Mystic, that decided that even the forms of what we would put into our ears and thus our minds would change radically as a statement against the staid certitudes of civilization upon which we had come to rely.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, with uh, now Elvis, Elvis was certainly sort of the first uh, the first crack in the facade that um, that all was humming along just uh, just fine and predictably and smoothly in post-war America, uh, and that everybody. Had what they needed, or were very, uh, or were uh, going to very soon have what they needed, uh, and that this progress was taking place that uh, we associated with the domination of America and world affairs, and uh, and then and then Elvis comes along, and you know some of his crazy associates like. Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and people like that. And, uh, and you get this little crack in the, uh, in the facade, which reveals that there's a whole other world of energy and, uh, and desires and, um, and, and a kind of power, um, Lurking there in, Amer- in America, in somebody's version of America, it's very different than the sort of Eisenhower era America um, of the suburbs and the uh, and the, and the uh, nicely, the decently ordered American dream life that everybody seemed to want. Um, and that and that. That did shake things up. Now, what it what it didn't shake up was the because the early rock and rollers were you know, they were caught by surprise by the hysteria that they uh, that they evoked. and uh, and most of them were people whom any sort of theorizing about their place in society and their role in history, was, was That was not their thing. That was not what they were thinking about. Um, so they had their moment, and they demonstrated that, that, that there were things in America that had yet to be taken into account, um, but they didn't come up with a plan for revolutionizing the culture and, uh, and turning things upside down. So what happened um, when the Beatles hit the United States was, I I make the point in my chapter about the the Beatles that um, from the very beginning, the Beatles brought with them the feeling and the idea that was implicit in their music that there was a different way to lead life. Uh, And that they sort of represented the first stirrings of a new culture that could be, that you could kind of take seriously, you know, in a way that, in a way that most of the 50s fans of the great 50s rockers didn't take the music seriously as a guide to how to live or the the possibilities of life. The Beatles did this, and it was partly just in the way they sounded, but it was in the way that they talked, it was in the public personas that, that they had. Um, and they brought over, they brought with them a new culture that they had been living in for quite some time. They had been, when they spent their time in Germany, honing their, their, their chops, um, they hung out with a lot of uh, sort of interesting people, sort of interesting bohemian-type, hipster-type people while they were over there. They, they fell into the sort of very early version of the counterculture over there. And although when they first put out their records, they seemed pretty clean-cut and pretty straightforward, yeah, you know, I want to hold your hand and things like that. Um, I I maintain in the book that there was still an energy there that was um, that was powerful enough to serve as the basis a new idea of how to live and of the possibilities of life that uh, that you weren't hearing about in uh, in Eisenhower era America um, and I think that um, the Beatles as you say they had their, their sort of their own swagger to them and um, they seemed to have this sort of attitude this humorous, unflappable attitude towards the hysteria that they were heading into. That sort of gave you the feeling as the years went by that the Beatles kind of knew what was going on. You know, people sort of credited the Beatles with this, almost a sort of mystical insight into where the world and culture was headed. And, um, and I think that goes back to the very early, to their first introduction to the United States.
3: That's great, Christopher. Yeah. Let me let me interject. I, you are spot on, and and now I like to bring Suzanne into this because I will have you know, Christopher Hill, that on Suzanne Mitchell's 12th birthday, the scene was filmed for a hard day's night that you write about. In your book, Into the Mystic, that's where George stumbles into a fashion director's office where they're trying to decide and schedule the next big thing. And George is perplexed and bemused by what he sees and hears going on. That was filmed on (laughs) Suzanne's 12th birthday, and I love to remind her of that. That's one of the best scenes in the whole film, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Oh, I love that. Yeah, it it encapsulates so much of... uh, of the Beatles' attitude towards what was happening all around them, um, and people, of course, were already trying. You know, like like that 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 marketing man in that in that vignette from the movie is desperately trying to understand what's going on, and um, and he just doesn't. You know, he's got this idea that the right product. If you can, if you can target your product um, well enough and and sharply enough, that you can make a lot of money, uh, because he sees this huge audience through this new music, and he figures there must be a way to uh, some other ways to cash in on it, um, and uh, and George George is great. George Harrison is great in that scene because. He just doesn't understand, you know. He he's looking at this guy as if he's observing um, a, a, a weird act in uh, in a circus or something. Um, George you, just
2: Christopher, is, I'm, um, I'm,
1: I'm, let's i read from I want to go ahead
2: and read this from your book and give people a, a taste of what Into the Mystic is about. You say you can observe this thing in the scene from A Hard Day's Night when George wanders into a hip London ad agency or PR firm, a place whose purpose is to monetize every shifting tremor of cool in the capital. The secretary is a splendid swinging London dream, her boss an epicene and twitchy hustler. They're sure George must be one of their creatures, but they're a little puzzled. Something about him doesn't quite fit. They think he might be an outrider from the next thing, but they check and find that the next thing isn't due for three more weeks. And that's what got (laughs) Gary and I chuckling. Hey, he's he's a little early. The next big thing isn't due yet. And so that's what makes that whole thing so comical. They're checking their calendars. Oh, my gosh. George could be the next big thing, but... It's not too yet. <laughs> and they and they ask him yet. what it, They ask
3: him for his opinion. Would he offer an opinion? And he says, "I'm quite prepared for that eventuality." <laughs> <laughs> this, this this wry skepticism and, and not taking any of this too seriously, which is to be in, both in the middle of it and then in the next moment to be detached from it and find find this all absurdly humorous.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that um, the thing about the Beatles and that especially people began to feel after after that movie came out, their first movie, A Hard Day's Night, um, was that you, you felt you were so... The world of the Beatles, the world that the Beatles seemed to live in was so appealing that you wanted to... You wanted to find the key to it. You wanted to live a Beatles life, um, and and be a part of whatever sort of culture this was that the Beatles were representing to uh, to the world. And um, I think that was that was a step toward the development of the counterculture in America. Um, I think that the Beatles, and I, I mentioned that a lot of this has to do with the fact of their Englishness, um, that um, the, the, the English culture that they had grown up in was one that, um, that was very geared towards um, uh, a vision of childhood, uh, a vision of innocence. Um, a vision of uh, freedom and freedom from restrictions, uh, freedom from the class system in England. Um, They had this whole sort of cultural world behind them when they came to the United States that American kids didn't necessarily understand, but they liked what they saw. And, uh, and it, gave it was responsible for giving people the first idea that maybe there was another way to live your life. And in that moment, in in that first little idea that you got from the Beatles was the beginning of uh, a whole world full of things that have happened since then. Um, You know, it's, it's the beginning... It's the beginning of people. Um, it's the beginning of people who practice meditation today, for example. Um, you know, it's the beginning. Of,
2: yes. One of the things that I'm finding interesting, especially about what you're saying right now, is you know this possibility that we were shown a, a new way of living is that this morning when uh, Gary and I were watching the news, there is a huge, huge protest movement going on worldwide, and they showed London, and there was a woman in London, uh, a black woman, very English accent, saying that um, you know the same problems exist in England as in the United States, and we've been rather... Uh, polite about it, and we haven't we haven't really come out and said that there's a race racism, racism problem here in the UK. And there definitely is. And then they were showing Spain and then they were showing South Korea and then they were showing Germany. And so this this protest movement that we're so aware of in the United States has really caused a worldwide stir, in much the same way that the pandemic has over one man's death. And now all of this is is coming up. And so it'll be interesting to see what the result is on a worldwide level if, if, if indeed there is going to be a shift in the cultural thinking. It won't just be in the United States.
1: Yeah, the, the international aspect to this and... To the, uh, to the reaction to the police killing in Minneapolis is really interesting. Um, and it, um, it sort of gives uh, an old baby boomer a glimmer of hope that, um, that the international part of the counterculture that stretched around the world eventually um, might be something like that might be woken up again.
3: Yes, yes. And I'm thinking this summer, that is going to happen because this is a presidential election year. It's going to be a weird couple of conventions, that's for sure. They won't be normal. And yet there will be a convening, and then you go out on the hustings, and somebody's going to be elected or reelected. And during that time frame, the potential for meaningful change is perhaps equal to the potential for chaos, and I want to listen to my hopeful side, but frankly, Christopher, as we come to the end of our interview, I just don't know. It isn't so much that I'm fearful, but at my age, I'm in my 60s now, I feel a bit world weary. I don't want to give up on hope, but I don't want to subsist on it either.
2: There you go. No,
1: well, ho- hopefully, <clears throat> hopefully what might be going on here, what you know, we we see we feel something in all of this that feels like maybe something big is going on, um, and if this can, if this energy can can hang in and um, and keep being fed and keep feeding itself, um, there might be. There might be, hopefully, a cultural aspect to this that goes on to propose ideas that are as new to society today as some of the ideas of the counterculture were back in the late 60s.
3: Well, Christopher, uh, from your lips you. to society's ears.
2: Thank you for being with us today, Christopher.
3: His book, Into the Mystic, The Visionary and Ecstatic Roots of 1960s Rock and Roll, the author, Christopher Hill. Thank you, Christopher. We will have you on again and pick this up where we left off.
2: Thank you so much. All right. Stay tuned for uh, Jupiter's, Jupiter's rising. rising again.
3: And have a great and safe weekend, everyone. This is AM 1150 KKNW in Seattle